This is an ABC podcast. Hello there. I'm Tom Switzer and it's always great to have your company. This is Between the Lines. Later in the program, European historian and former UK Supreme Court Justice, Jonathan Sumption. Democracy isn't just a matter of having the institutions, the elections, the ballot boxes and so on. It also demands a very important cultural underpinning. You need a culture of restraint. You need a culture of tolerance. Tolerance of opinions that you might find completely repellent, for example. You need an atmosphere in which debate is legitimate, even on the most fundamental beliefs uh, of parts of the population. Now, that is what is declining now. That's Lord Jonathan Sumption. We'll chat about democracy's decline, the toppling of statues, the lockdowns, and the future of Europe. Stay with us for that. But first, Xi Jinping. By a vote of 2,296 to zero, she has secured a historic third term as General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party and is now China's most powerful, most ideological leader since Chairman Mao Zedong. So what agenda will Xi Jinping set for China during the next five years and beyond? Kevin Rudd, no stranger to this program, is a former foreign minister and Prime Minister. These days, he's President and CEO of the Asia Society in New York. He's also author of The Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the United States and Xi Jinping's China. Kevin Rudd, welcome back to the program. Good to be back on uh, ABC Radio. Now, you've observed that she has revived the Mao-era slogan about, quote, the rise of the East and the decline of the West. Tell us more. Mao, always a believer in uh, historical materialism, um, an ancient Marxist-Leninist craft, was of the view that the inexorable forces of history were pushing the Chinese revolution forward and pushing the forces of imperialism and capitalism backwards into the sea. That was Mao's ideological view. But basically, it's a view that bit the dust during the Deng Xiaoping period when Deng and his colleagues discovered after the Cultural Revolution that the country was virtually broke. And yet what Xi Jinping has done um, after uh, Deng's uh, period of uh, reform, opening and economic success uh, is revive this phrase, again using uh, historical materialism, to uh, claim, at least to his internal party audience, uh, that China is on an inexorable rise, that the West, the United States, and the rest of the Western liberal democracies are in decline, and that China is now on the forward march to becoming a preeminent regional global power by mid-century. So it has it's full of historical resonance within the Chinese Communist Party. It's replete with ideological content because of uh, historical materialism, and it's also loaded on with nationalism as well and therefore means that he doesn't intend to be a status quo leader for the next period that he's in office. Yes, the rise of the East is interesting because if you look at a lot of other authoritarian states in East Asia, uh, I think of Taiwan, South Korea, Indonesia, the Philippines, I mean, they're now Western-influenced democracies 
you know, really as their middle classes have grown. But the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, that's never relinquished uh, its grip on power. Indeed, I found this interesting. You've argued in your various commentaries in recent months that she has moved the CCP to the, quote, Leninist left. Yeah, the argument uh, I put, having read most of the stuff that this guy has written over the years, uh, is that if you look at the trend lines over the last decade, he's executed an ideological shift to what I call the Leninist left in politics, the Marxist left in the economy, Mm. and towards the nationalist right in foreign policy in support of a more Mm. assertive Chinese position in the world. On the Leninist left, what I argue uh, is that you see almost from the get-go after Xi Jinping becomes leader in 2012, 2013, that uh, he makes a very clear-cut statement that the party was ideologically in disrepair, it was organisationally in disrepair, uh, and urgent action needed to be taken unless, and this was his explicit warning, that the Chinese Communist Party went the way of the Soviet Union uh, and the CPSU, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. So right from the get-go, you see a series of measures by him to reassert the centrality of the vanguard party, the revolutionary party at the heart of everything in China. He's got this great phrase, which he also rehabilitated from the Mao Zedong period, which is, it doesn't matter whether we are east, west, north and south, whether we're talking about the army, the administration, scholarship society, uh, or the rest of China, the party leads in all. And that's what he's done, uh, frankly, over the last 10 years. Yes, so the Leninist left on politics, and then you mentioned the nationalist right on foreign policy. Let's keep with your other line, the Marxist left on economics. Surely by scrapping economic liberalisation and doubling down on state control of the economy, isn't there a very real danger that China's economy will continue to falter, especially, and you've written a lot about this, given China's ageing population, its shrinking workforce, and that's not to mention its COVID zero policy. Kevin? The move to the Marxist left came a little later than that to the Leninist left on pure politics. We see it emerge particularly after China's own domestic financial crisis of 2015, financial crisis of 2015. Uh, And in 2017, the 19th Party Congress, just five years ago, signalled a big ideological shift that it was time to move the party's central ideological emphasis away from unrestrained development to a greater role for the party in the state in attending to what he called the imbalances of development. That created the ideological headwaters for then the policy apparatus across the economy to begin shifting the centre of gravity more towards party and state intervention in the market, a greater role for state-owned enterprises, a lesser role for the private sector, new doctrines of common prosperity. But you're right, you put this together with other headwinds facing the Chinese economy, this ideological shift, I believe, is actually undermining private fixed capital investment because it's undermining business confidence and undermining productivity growth and therefore makes the growth model questionable for the future if China's going to still hope to become the world's largest economy. Okay, next line is the nationalist right on foreign policy. Now, do you think that Xi Jinping will continue and even strengthen these trends? 
If you look carefully at the work report of the 20th Party Congress, which regrettably folks like me have to read line by line, uh, all 40,000 40, characters, um, and uh, it's, it's like an exercise in medieval metaphysics. You line up the 20th Party Congress text, and next to it you've got the 19th Party Congress text, and then you work out what's changed because that's how it's read by 96 million members of the Chinese Communist Party, and that's the signalling mechanisms that is embedded in the ideological discourse to the whole show. On this one, the nationalist right, yes, all the ideological positioning on China's nationalist ambition to become the preeminent global power by 2049 is there. Um, but what I find interesting is the language that he uses for the first time uh, to uh, indicate that the age of so-called peace and development, the age of China's strategic opportunity, uh, that language is not there like it has been in previous Congress work reports going back 20 and even 30 years. The significance of that, Tom, is this. It's been the code language in the past to say to the system, we don't believe that there is any major war on the horizon, and one which would involve us at least, and therefore we can focus all our efforts on the development of the economy and expanding our normal foreign policy influence. What this says by dropping those two key references and by other things the Congress report says, warning of uh, grave changes in the international environment, making preparations for dangers in peacetime and further preparations for, quote, the storm, unquote, that he's sending out a very strong message that uh, to the system that China should be on uh, what I would describe as a small W war footing for the future. That is, the national security agenda is now an important agenda than that of the economy. This, I think, should be read starkly by those of us in the rest of the world as China changing gear. Okay, but that nationalist right trend that you've identified, uh, some might say it's part of this wolf warrior style diplomacy that we really felt the pain of during the COVID pandemic. Hasn't that just been a catalyst for even stronger US response? I don't just mean the quiet and AUKUS, but also, and this is very important in light of what's happened in the last week or so, and it hasn't been getting much attention in Australia, that is the US acceleration of this uh, technical decoupling from China. And Biden and his administration's pledging harsher US measures to come in advanced computing, biotech, manufacturing, finance, all that. I suppose the question here is that tough US response, that'll surely slow China's technological rise, won't it? Well, you're right uh, to say that Xi Jinping's move to the nationalist right has not just been rhetorical. China has taken a whole series of substantive moves on the ground through its foreign policy, through its military deployments, through island reclamation, the South China Sea, etc., and as you have documented together with others, since 2017 under H.R. McMaster, the United mm -hmm. States uh, has developed what has become effectively a bipartisan national security strategy within the framework of strategic competition. One arm of strategic competition is what you just pointed to, which is technological decoupling, although it's not a term the Americans use in their most recent national security strategy. But they're seeking to impede and China's um, rapid development of the most advanced semiconductors uh, in the world. And therefore, two arms to this policy in the US have been 
um, the CHIPS Act, which is effectively a piece of industrial mm. policy providing large slabs of cash to companies like Intel and others, but at the same time then restricting those companies' ability to export high-quality microchips to the Chinese system. China at present, depending on who you read, is between three and five years behind in terms of uh, the sophistication of the um, microprocessors which they use. TSMC in Taiwan, the world's leading producer, is probably running at about three to six nanometers at present. The Chinese probably more like nine nanometers, maybe even um, less sophisticated than that. The object of American policy is to sustain that gap. Will it work? Well, the administration's reached a conclusion that these are the policy levers to pull. Let's see what happens in reality. Tom Switzer here, and my guest is the former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, who's president of the Asia Society in New York. He's recently written lead articles on Xi's China in the Wall Street Journal and Foreign Affairs magazine. And I'd encourage all listeners who are interested in the subject of China to go online, just go to YouTube and check out Kevin Rudd's recent exchange in front of a pretty decent audience. It's certainly got a very large YouTube audience with Henry Kissinger, of course, the former National Security Advisor and Secretary of State to Presidents Nixon and Ford. Kevin, how is the old boy? 99, still sharp, sound and style and substance? Very much so. Um, he was happy to come along and help us um, at the Asia Society launch our new Centre for China Analysis, uh, which has a group of about 20 to 25 policy researchers now that uh, we've built up to look at Chinese domestic politics and foreign and security policy and climate. Henry was uh, delighted to do it. Um, he supports the serious and uh, disciplined study of China. And I've got to say, in the exchange I had with him on stage, as you said, um, sharp as ever. If I'm like that when I'm 69, I'll be happy, let alone 99. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's extraordinary. Now, you mentioned climate there. Just reminded me, in Xi's speech last weekend, he made it very clear that China, and we should remember, its net emissions are steadily escalating. I think the climate tracker showed that between 2015 and 2021, China's emissions went up 11%, whereas the United States during that same time frame, and remember, we're talking about the Trump era, US emissions went down 6%. So China's emissions went up 11%, US emissions went down 6%. But Xi's point in that speech, Kevin, was that China won't be rushed here on its clean energy transformation uh, they'll keep burning fossil fuels until Beijing is confident that clean energy can reliably replace them. What do you make of China's position on on climate change here, given that they have been a disruptor, as you memorably put it, I won't mention the words, but Copenhagen in 2009, they have helped torpedo uh, any, any attempts to reach a legally binding, genuinely global deal on uh, reducing emissions. So your views on China and climate change, Kevin? Yeah, I did express firm views to our Chinese friends back then. Uh, and I've maintained firm views, perhaps more privately held since then, uh, on uh, China's need for a maximum global contribution given their share of the global carbon envelope, uh, which uh, is huge. Uh, now they represent about 30% of annual emissions globally. Um, and... By the time we get to the 2040s, uh, China's cumulative emissions and those of uh, that it pumps out each year uh, will be greater than those of the United States cumulatively and currently. 
So the argument we've always had from China and India and others that um, all you folks in the West don't lecture us, you pumped all this stuff out there into the atmosphere and you expect us to clean it up for you, that argument begins to evaporate, um, as does climate stability generally. On the internal politics of it in China, A, they get the science. That happened, regrettably, not long after Copenhagen. Scientific consensus was reached in the Chinese position. B, since Paris in 2015, they've had their own roadmap being developed for how they get to uh, carbon neutrality themselves, net carbon neutral by 2060, which is still too late. Uh, and they'll see at uh, Glasgow what they've indicated last year was three things, reaffirming carbon neutrality by 2060, carbon peaking by 2030, which is again too late, and no more coal-fired power stations being paid for under the Belt and Road Initiative. But you know something, Tom, the internal debate within the system is still hard fought between those who get the science and the economic opportunities of a rapid renewable energy transformation. And from their perspective, the national security reliability of domestically generated renewables rather than externally supplied hydrocarbons versus the old coal uh, and oil and gas lobby within the country. It's hard fought. I know the players involved. But unless China lifts its effort, both in the targets it set for itself and its um, preparedness to throw the political will at meeting it, then the planet won't stay within 1.5 degrees increases by a century's end. And that is a problem for all of us. Yeah, well, we've had on this program over the years our mutual friend Greg Sheridan from the Australian newspaper, uh, Patricia Adams, a, a climate economist from Toronto, and they make it very clear that China's goal is to grow their economies, obviously, but the, and to reduce poverty or continue to re reduce poverty. And the cheapest way of doing that for the next few decades will still be on the back of carbon energy. This is where the debate is sharp within the country because the renewable energy lobby on the back of a massive um, domestic solar industry with the cheapest panels um, produced anywhere in the world off the back also of state subsidy are there to be taken up. It's the transition that is too slow. To be fair to Modi in India, um, his government quite recently has decided that their pathway to becoming a future major industrial economy is to engineer the renewable energy transformation first um, and then to become both a green, reliable and a geopolitically reliable supply chain to the rest of the world. There is now a competitive tension emerging uh, with India for the first time. Remember a decade or two decades ago, Tom, how China and India are always mentioned uh, in the same breath as the two major emerging economies. Then China surged ahead over the last 20 years. I think we should all watch what India does competitively mm. now, seeking to create uh, a credible alternative for global supply chains coming out of that country, given the slowness in the clean energy transformation that you pointed to in China, plus geopolitics. Kevin, always great to have you on the program. Good to be with you, Tom. All the best to the listeners. That was former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, whose latest book is called The Avoidable War the dangers of a catastrophic conflict between the United States and Xi Jinping's China. Coming up, are we witnessing the death of democracy?
Well, my next guest is something of a Renaissance man. Originally an Oxford history don, he wrote the definitive multi-volume history of the Hundred Years' War during the Middle Ages. Having been what was widely regarded as a brilliant QC, he then served as a justice on Britain's Supreme Court. That was from 2012 to 2018. A music lover, he sits on the board of English National Opera. He's also a linguist who speaks fluent French and Italian, and he reads Spanish, Portuguese, Dutch, and Latin. I've probably missed a language. <laughs> In 2019, he delivered the BBC Wreath Lectures. That's the British equivalent of the ABC Boyer Lectures. And the subject, the relationship between politics and the law. Jonathan Sumption is author of Law in a Time of Crisis. It's published by Profile Books. It's a collection of essays that he's published in the past decade. And he was recently in the country as a guest of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I spoke with Jonathan Sumption last week and I asked him why he thinks the death of democracy is a very real prospect. I think people are disillusioned with democracy, particularly the young, for a number of reasons. Probably the main reason is economic. Democracy has always depended on a certain amount of economic optimism, and there's less of that about nowadays. Uh, there's also the fear factor, which we saw uh, absolutely exemplified by the reaction of most democracies to the lockdown. Uh, if you frighten people enough, they will submit to almost anything. And the desire for security is seriously getting in the way of anything which I would regard as a democracy. But is this really a new phenomenon? I mean, democracy's been written off in the past, yet it's shown impressive ability to bounce back from setbacks. Why is this time different, do you think? I'll tell you why it's different. Um, democracy isn't just a matter of having the institutions, the elections, the ballot boxes and so on. It also demands a very important cultural underpinning. You need a culture of restraint. You need a culture of tolerance, tolerance of opinions that you might find completely repellent, for example. You need an atmosphere in which debate is legitimate, even on the most fundamental beliefs uh, of parts of the population. Now, that is what is declining now. Uh, when democracies have failed, if you look at it historically, and they very often have, it's not usually because the tanks are sitting in front of the Parliament House. Uh, it's because the outward forms of democracy are still there, but the cultural underpinning has simply gone. What did Winston Churchill once say, that what democracy is the worst form of government? Well, what he said was that it was the worst form of government except for every <laughs> exactly. other kind. But I think better of it than that. I think democracy is one of the best forms of government. One of the reasons why democracy has in the past worked is that it it's, makes it absolutely necessary for government to consult a wide range of interests. The problem about autocracy, or one of the problems about autocracy, is that it banishes consultation, it banishes agreement, mm. uh, it banishes tolerance, and it replaces them by an atmosphere of subservience to power, which is not just uh, repellent for those who live under that regime, uh, it's also staggeringly inefficient. It means that serious mistakes are made which would otherwise have been avoided. Well, as you said, one of the key features of a vibrant democracy is the freedom of speech, tolerance, tolerance of different opinions. 
So to what extent uh, is this so-called cancel culture, to what extent is that a threat to democratic ideals? I think that that cancel culture and the intolerance that goes with it uh, is actually a very serious development. Uh, It narrows our intellectual horizons in a big way if there are certain points of view which are off limits irrespective of the of what arguments may be advanced in support of them but that's actually only only part of the problem that we have a a state of affairs now where on many issues like for example to take two very different kinds of issues gender reassignment or climate change there are a lot of people who are inclined to say it's more important to get the answer that we want uh, than to Uh, get it by uh, democratic means. Democracy, among other things, depends on people taking the view uh, that the most important thing is the way in which we make decisions. That's more important than the outcome of any one issue. Yes, well, you mentioned transgender issues and the question of climate change. What about religious freedom? I mean, while you've been in Australia, Jonathan, the the Essendon Bombers football team, its CEO was forced to step down because he's a Christian. What did that controversy tell you about public discourse in this country? It's not unique to Australia. We've had similar problems in Europe and in the United Kingdom. Uh, The problem about it is uh, that if if we take the example of the man who was forced out of his job at Essendon Football Club, as I understand it, the underlying issue here was the views of his church on abortion. Mm. Now, abortion is a major moral issue. I believe that there should be a right of abortion, but I don't think that people who take the opposite view uh, are beyond the pale, I don't think that they should be silenced. I think that on a major moral issue of this kind, the only way that we are going to progress uh, is to engage in an honest debate about it. The Catholic Church's teaching on abortion is not something that I personally agree with. But there's no doubt that it is a major... The Catholic Church is the major Christian denomination across the world. Uh, A very large proportion of the world's population, particularly in the West, uh, adhere to it. Uh, To dismiss all those people uh, as not even entitled to be heard uh, seems to me to be outrageous. What about the toppling of statues? Now, many young people in their 20s and 30s across the West, especially the Anglosphere, they have been intent on pulling down statues of historical figures that today they dismiss as, you know, unworthy people. They're they're trying to airbrush the past to reflect today's reality. What's wrong with that campaign? Well, the main thing that's wrong with it is that it fundamentally misunderstands uh, humanity. Uh, Hardly any human beings are wholly good or wholly bad. Almost all of them Uh, are a mixture of the two at different moments or sometimes even at the same time. If you take slavery, which has been the source of a lot of the statue destruction, uh, you take a man 
like Edward Colston, whose statue was pulled down in Bristol in the United Kingdom because he was a shareholder in the Royal Africa Company, which in the 17th century engaged in the slave trade. Mm -hmm. That's not why his statue is there. His statue is there because he was one of the greatest benefactors that the city of Bristol has ever had. He founded almshouses, he founded hospitals, he founded schools. Uh, now, uh, here is a man who is being commemorated for the good he did. But the people who pull the statue down are saying, well, because he also was a shareholder in the Royal Africa Company, nothing else about him matters. Now, by that test, there's hardly any of us who would pass muster. OK, but would you apply that logic to, say, um, leaders of the US South in the Civil War? I mean, the, your critics would say the people who pull down statues are not trying to change the past. They're simply... They just want to change how we commemorate the past and the present. Well, that is uh, a, a powerful argument in relation to, say, statues of Robert E. Lee, mm -hmm. which commemorate absolutely nothing other than his leadership of Confederate armies in the Civil War in a cause which most of us uh, do not, well, I think substantially all of us do not support. Um, now, that's a different case uh, to uh, someone like Edward Colston, who has been commemorated in Bristol exclusively because of his benefactions to the city of Bristol. What about the great English explorer James Cook? Yes. Well, uh, that's a different case again. Uh, James Cook uh, uh, expanded our knowledge of a large part of the globe, including the part of the globe that we are now sitting in. There is a suggestion that because he opened up uh, the southern hemisphere of the Pacific uh, to Western colonization, uh, he inflicted a great injustice uh, on uh, the indigenous population. But, uh, I mean historically, uh, I think they did suffer an injustice. Um, but uh, to blame Cook uh, for the massacres of the indigenous population which followed the arrival of the First Fleet in Australia, uh, simply because he told people where Australia was, seems to me to be a, a particularly a richly absurd idea. And John Howard, the former Australian Prime Minister, has often made the point that context is important. If it weren't the English, it would have been the French or, or the Portuguese or someone else from Europe. Well, that is... Uh, probably correct. And one of the problems about a lot of this is that people, uh, about the whole debate about colonialism, is that people are not comparing uh, colonial regimes with the regimes that would have existed without the Western colonizers. They're comparing them with today, which is a pretty meaningless comparison after 200 years has intervened. Now, you're also against public apologies for historical events. Now, let me put this to you. This is Daniel Finkelstein, a conservative columnist in the London Times, and he made this point about uh, your position on public apologies, Jonathan. He said, this is Finkelstein, quote, the point of the apology is to convey our understanding what was done was an error partly committed as a result of prejudices we are still working to eliminate. What's wrong with that view? Well, what's wrong with it is that the prejudices are not still here and we're not still working to eliminate them. Uh, I don't know of anyone in the world who would stand up and justify slavery. This is a debate which has been comprehensively and completely won by the anti-slavers. Uh, so we do not need to pull statues down in order to teach us that slavery is completely contrary to our modern standards. Some listening in might say that uh, 
that the dire plight of Indigenous Australians is directly related to colonialism. This is a legacy of colonialism. Well, it may be a legacy of colonialism, but it's not a legacy of slavery. Former UK Supreme Court Justice Lord Jonathan Sumption, he's my guest, and this is Tom Switzer on RN's Between the Lines. He's author of Law in a Time of Crisis, and he's been in Australia this month as a guest of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. Jonathan, let's talk about the lockdowns. You were a leading critic of the British government's attitude to law enforcement during the COVID era. You said uh, that history will look back at the measures taken as a monument of, quote, collective hysteria and government folly. And you went on to say that the British state has exercised coercive powers over its citizens on a scale never previously attempted. But Jonathan, didn't the state take vastly greater powers in both world wars? Yes, uh, and it, uh, uh, it no doubt needed to do so. Uh, but this is a, a much lesser uh, crisis than the two world wars, and the overreaction has been very much greater. Remember, there was a fair amount of overreaction uh, in the two world wars. The United States locked up the entire West Coast Japanese population of the United States, uh, and Britain locked up a lot of fervent anti-Nazis who happened to be of German origin, as many anti-Nazis were, uh, on the Isle of Man, so that even wartime is not exempt uh, from a certain amount of hysteria uh, and overreaction. The problem about the lockdown was, first of all, uh, that nobody calculated the enormous collateral damage that it would do in terms of educational operational opportunity for children, societal disruption, uh, economic de- catastrophe, the destruction of businesses which people have, may have spent their whole lives uh, building up. Nobody actually sat down to work out what the downside was. And the downside, as we're all increasingly recognising, was really very serious. The other problem uh, about the lockdown is that nobody really sat down to say, well, how much of the supposed benefits of a lockdown can we achieve with a voluntary system? Remember that although COVID-19 can infect anyone, only certain categories are likely to become seriously ill or die of it. And they are basically uh, the old uh, and people who suffer from about a dozen or 15 uh, identifiable clinical conditions, mostly affecting the respiratory system. Governments should have made use of this fact so as to use non-coercive methods to persuade the vulnerable uh, to shelter themselves while leaving the rest who are not so vulnerable uh, to get on with their lives uh, and engage in the productive activities on which every society depends. Okay, a couple of responses to that. The first one is the counterfactual. I mean, if the government had not locked down and if many more people had died, this is the argument your critics would say, the pressure on governments to act would have grown And the threats to the things that you value and I value, freedom of choice, personal assessment of risk, they'd be even greater. Jonathan Sumption. Well, uh, those values were comprehensively trampled on anyway. So I don't see once you've squashed something into the ground how much more damage you can do. Uh, But uh, one answer to this is to look at the one country uh, which uh, did perhaps act more or less in the way that I think that we should have acted. Um, and that country is Sweden. Mm. Uh, Sweden operated uh, a an almost entirely voluntary system. They closed mass events, 
over five hundred over fifty thousand uh, they uh, closed in educational institutions for those over sixteen. Uh, but those were basically the only things they did. There were no mask mandates, the restaurants and bars didn't close, uh, people were not required uh, to stay at home. And their figures uh, are a great deal better than the UK's, which is a country with roughly comparable uh, dis age distribution of the population uh, and density of population. OK, but what about public opinion? I mean, that, all the polls showed that public opinion from Britain to Australia to the United States, they seem set on putting safety first. Yes, uh, and uh, what they, I think, failed to do was to realise what the huge societal cost of doing that is. As I said at an earlier stage, uh, ex historical experience shows that if you frighten people enough, they will submit to absolutely anything. Uh, and that's what we've witnessed across the world. You don't have to frighten them. The Swedish government didn't do so. It got very respectable results by treating uh, their citizens as grown-ups instead of locking them down. Okay, now you're a well-known sceptic of lockdowns, but you're also a sceptic of Brexit. You've been a remainder, so in 2016 you voted for Britain to stay in the EU. Yet many Conservatives and indeed many uh, Labor voters, particularly in those working-class constituencies of Northern England and the Midlands who voted for Brexit, they'd say to you that there's a lot wrong with the EU. They'd say it's bloated, it's protectionist, it's elitist posturing, strongly support state intervention in not just economics issues, but also social issues. So why did you vote for Britain to stay in the EU? Well, I would agree with most of those criticisms <laughs> of the EU, but I think the problem about this whole issue is that neither side of the debate is prepared to add up the pros and cons, which is a basic exercise whenever you're looking at a major policy issue. Yes, there's an awful lot wrong with the EU, including all the things you've just read to me. Uh, but the things that are right with it and the things that are beneficial, uh, in my view, outweighed it. It's a value judgment. I mean, uh, I was not, uh, so to speak, an aggressive Remainer. I didn't campaign on the subject. The discussions in which I participated on the subject uh, were with my family around the kitchen table. Mm. Well, you were a Supreme Court justice at the time. Yes, so I wasn't going to mm. uh, uh, pronounce publicly on that. I've got greater freedom to express my views now that I've retired. Mm. Um, but uh, the basic problem is that we are a country in the UK uh, of 65 million people. Uh, and the market from which we've excluded uh, ourselves is nearly half a billion. Now, there's no point in pretending uh, that we can uh, have the same level of growth and the same level of market penetration in our current situation as we had on a friction-free single market extending the whole way across the European continent. Finally, Europe, your history of the horrors and pointlessness of the Hundred Years' War, uh, that would suggest that you might have an interesting take on Europe at the moment. I mean, it is suffering a massive energy crisis, a demographic crisis, cost of living crisis. For Europeans, it seems uh, from afar, there's something embarrassing or, or even dangerous about sovereignty, uh, except perhaps in the football stadium. <laughs> Thoughts on Europe in 2022? Many of the problems of Europe, which undoubtedly you, you've correctly summarised, are not exclusively problems of Europe. They affect the United States, they affect Australia, they affect uh, substantially 
the whole world. Much worse in Europe, though, isn't it? Uh, it's slightly worse in Europe, but because we obviously take the fallout from the Ukraine war much mm. more directly. Our energy supplies, we are much more dependent uh, on uh, um, uh, on Russia mm -hmm. uh, than most other parts of the world. That's certainly true, but it's a difference uh, of degree. I think there are cultural problems, the sort of things we've been discussing in the context of democracy, which are actually problems in Europe, but they are really problems everywhere else as well. Uh, I am a huge believer that Europe has a single powerful civilization uh, with naturally uh, local variants in each country. It has been the greatest cultural force for the advance of humanity in the history of the world. And that's not a record which I'm inclined to junk. That was Jonathan Sumption, a former UK Supreme Court Justice. He's author of Law in a Time of Crisis, and he's been in Australia this month as a guest of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. Up next, shifts and realignments in Swedish politics. Well, when you think of Sweden, it's safe and prosperous and generous and egalitarian. It's a country with liberal and progressive attitudes towards, well, just about everything. Well, maybe that stereotype needs revising. Sweden, you might be surprised to learn, has the highest number of fatal shootings in all of Europe. Bombings, grenade attacks, other forms of extreme violence involving criminal gangs, that's become all too common. And it was against this backdrop in early September that the country went to the polls and the results, well, there was a considerable shift away from the centre-left parties that have dominated Swedish politics for decades. You see, the left-leaning Social Democrats, they've won 19 of the last 24 elections. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Now, the mood in Sweden has changed and an alliance of centre-right parties, late last week, they formed government. Well, to discuss this political shift and some of the reasons for it, I'm joined by Kira Pronin, a postdoctoral associate in the political science department at the University of Pittsburgh. Kira, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Tell us about the new Swedish prime minister. Well, I, I would say that the new prime minister, Ulf Kristersson, uh, is a fairly typical Swedish politician. So he has a long-term background first in student politics and local government, and he has also been a member of parliament before. So he has been a moderate party leader since 2017. And to the Australian audience, so moderate party is uh, generally the second largest party in Sweden. It's a liberal conservative party, classical liberal ideas about free markets and personal freedoms. And the largest party is uh, typically social democrats by a wide margin. And Christensen was also the minister of social security in 2010 and 2014. And he made a previous attempt at uh, becoming the prime minister in 2018. And he was also the first party leader to make overtures to the nationalist populist Sweden Democrats Party to form a right-wing coalition. So before 2018, this um, Sweden Democrats Party was a bit of a political kryptonite. Nobody wanted to, be, wanted to be associated with them. Why was that? Tell us about the Swedish Democrats. Well, the Swedish Democrats are a right-wing nationalistic and populist party. So they're a bit similar to the other European populist parties. 
So in the neighboring Norway, we have the Progress Party, and in Finland, we have the Finns Party. So some of these other populist parties are a little bit more moderate, sort of vaguely libertarian, and they have been focused on fighting bureaucracy and taxation, and, and they also have a sort of a anti-immigration stance. But the Sweden Democrats have kind of a bit more nefarious origins, and some of the early members had connections with fascist and white nationalist circles. So sometime kind of in the mid-1990s, these members have been ousted, and the Sweden Democrats Party insists that it is not a far-right party, but uh, some academics, some commentators disagree. It's moderated its views in recent times. It's attracted, what, 20% of the vote. Are these Swedish Democrats formally part of this new governing coalition? Um, no. So what happened is that uh, the, it's very typical to have fairly uh, even uh, division of votes and seats uh, between the right and left blocks in Swedish politics, and they have a lot of minority governments. So, so this time uh, um, the right bloc wanted to form a government because it got a majority, but they could not do so without the Sweden Democrats. And like I mentioned, they are a bit of a political kryptonite. So they negotiated for a month and they did this uh, very clever agreement called Tito Agreement. Um, where um, the three parties that have previously been in government together. So you have the moderate party that I mentioned, and then it's liberals, sort of a liberal, classical liberal party. And the Christian Democrats formed a government. And they left the Sweden Democrats out of the government, but made an agreement. They would get support from them for immigration policies and for fighting crime. And in exchange, they got seats in this office called the government offices, which sort of has all the ministries organized underneath them. So they kind of have kind of like agenda-setting power kind of behind the scenes. Let's keep with the Swedish Democrats because this is quite striking. 20% of the vote is quite considerable given Swedish history. And it seems from afar that uh, this is a, a trend across the European Union. If you look at Marine Le Pen, a leader of what's been known as the far-right party in France, that receives something like 40 42% of the popular vote last uh, April in the presidential runoff with uh, Emmanuel Macron. And uh, there's also the uh, the Brothers of Italy just recently. Uh, their origins trace back to the Italian social movement, and that was founded by ex-fascists after World War II. That won something like 25 to 30% of the vote. So with the Swedish Democrats, I mean, how do you account for their rise in popularity over the last decade? Well, this has been sort of building up. So, so first of all, the recent uh, jump in their popularity is because of this uh, absolutely huge rise in uh, gang violence and shooting, especially among immigrant uh, youths. And, and if you remember, there was the 2015 migration crisis in Europe, and lots of young men came from Middle East and other countries. And, you know, it, it is this young men in every country, in any population, are always lead the crime statistics. So, now this crime has spilled out of those uh, immigrant neighbors to kind of e everywhere and, uh, like you said, reached a shocking level. And uh, Sweden Democrats being the anti-immigrant party, so they have what we call issue ownership of this issue. So even though the other parties have jumped on the fray and, and tried to moderate the crime, then the people find this party like sort of the most believable in this. And there's sort of this long-term uh, development in Europe where, uh, you know, like before you had a, Europe was sort of had sort of an industrial basis, and uh, especially in the north, maybe not in Germany, but in Scandinavia, certainly they have become more of a service economies. So you have sort of a large kind of middle class that's university educated in this kind of office jobs. So before all the politics was uh, about labor versus capital, so factory workers versus their factory owners. 
and almost all political conflicts were organized on, on this. And they were large labor unions that organized into national confederations and large uh, industries also organized into confederations. And uh, most of the policies were kind of negotiated between these two blocks. And then all the political parties were also organized in these two blocks. But now you have a different economic organization with this large middle class and it's sort of traditionally working class parties like the social democrats are now appealing to this middle class who also now cares about what we call post-materialistic values which is like a same-sex marriage or an environment so so they are trying to like um you know attract the middle class by by sort of more economically liberal policies because middle class has benefited from the globalization and european union the working class has not so they have kind of moved away from the working class uh, so there's this been kind of this opening uh, for a long time, and it has been filled and starting being filled starting kind of in the 1990s with the globalization and changing economy. If you go back to the end of the Cold War, my understanding of Sweden is that um, it became a popular destination for immigrants. I think you mentioned that in passing before. And there was a widespread assumption, I think, that they're mostly Muslim immigrants would eventually assimilate into Sweden's multicultural, liberal, tolerant culture. Has that assumption been proven badly wrong? Well, I mean, originally uh, it was the Finnish people who came to work in the Swedish car factories and so on. So they, and they originally, they also committed quite a bit of crime and, and were in uh, headlines. Uh, but at that time, you know, it wasn't, wasn't spilling over to other neighborhoods. And then, then you had the, the Yugoslav refugees and, and various other groups. And, and there was always like, like every time you have a large group of people come, there's some issues. And I guess now about 20% of the population, or 2 million people out of 10 million people are foreign born. So it's possible it just reached kind of a, a critical level. Is it fair to describe Sweden now, like most EU states, as being socially balkanised? Well, I wouldn't quite say that. Um, well, I, I just asked that because this but, new yeah, Islamist but, party, but, yeah, yeah, Nuance, this, this, yeah. Yeah, this new Islamist party, I think it's called Nuance, didn't that take as much as a quarter of the vote in some inner city districts? And that surely hurt the, the Social Democrats and helped the no, Swedish Democrats. Kind of a, um, it was kind of a new, fairly marginal party that's actually trying to uh, be a voice for the immigrants. I don't know if this party will be successful. There's a lot of um, sort of fractious relations within the immigrant community because you have like a Shia and Sunni relationships and different types of immigrants. So I don't, I don't know. I thought it was kind of interesting they have this party and they certainly need a voice in politics somehow. I mean, the question I suppose I'm asking here is to what extent is this election in Sweden, does it represent a political realignment? In a political realignment in a sense that uh, there is kind of an anti-immigrant tide that's kind of washing over all the parties um and then uh, it's this concerns about the the crime so all the parties have kind of shifted just like they did in denmark earlier so that all the parties including the ones with traditionally pro-immigrants have become a, a bit critical of immigration and wanting to be curtailed so so that kind of realignment is happening so i don't know that's going to kind of mix up the whole landscape because like uh, if other parties absorb your platform then i don't know like, are you going to stay in power? But they also have this uh, economically populist leaning. So, so like for uh, sort of disaffected workers who are maybe not in such good jobs that are not middle class or working class, but not sort of fat, sort of high end factory workers or something, yeah. uh, and rural. Well, 
So there will be a there's also a rural um, city split that's emerging more and more. Back to this social balkanisation. This is the leader of the Social Democrats. They've called the the leader of the Swedish Democrats on the far right a racist, which is probably a widespread view until at least recently, where this person's done extremely well and attracted a lot of people more in the margins if it's going up to 20%. But the leader of the Social Democrats, I understand, uh, has decried the breakdown of Swedish society into ethnic enclaves, and she's called them Somali town. Well, there have been some... Uh a couple of incidents that have been in the media, like uh, around the, the victory, where it's a bit, bit of a name calling back and forth. There are concerns about the integration, and I don't know which way things will go because now Sweden also has very big problems with, uh, you know, the Russia-Ukraine uh, situation, uh, loan pipelines, and it's just the worsening uh, inflation and uh, the energy crisis. So, so I'm not, I'm not sure this, this rhetoric may die down and they might focus on other issues. I'm not really sure, but. Uh, the, the government certainly has a lot on its plate and, and they have to do something about this crime and I don't know how they're going to do it because the immigrants are multiple groups, they're gangs. I mean, they're, they're not like traditional interest groups that, that Swedish governments are used to negotiating with. This new consensus, if there is indeed a realignment, it seems to be calling for immigration controls, a stronger policing, cultural integration. But how has the Russian invasion of Ukraine change Swedish attitudes about foreign policy and its security in Europe? Well, I mean, they have been tightening their security policy um, for a while now. I mean, I mean, it's not a new thing for Russian submarines to be in the Baltic Sea, uh, but, but certainly things have gotten, gotten worse and people are on edge. So um, I would expect uh, increased defense spending and uh, there's more international cooperation. And of course, right now, Turkey is blocking uh, Sweden's and Finland's access to, uh, to NATO. So we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, Sweden's been Sweden's been sort of independent and neutral and out of war since the Napoleonic Wars. It's kind of buffered by NATO and on one side, and then uh, by Finland with its strong army on the other side. So it's been kind of in a safe spot before. It's kind of kind of new to Sweden to, to feel threatened. That was Kira Pronen, postdoctoral associate of the Political Science Department, the University of Pittsburgh. Well, that's it for the show. And just a reminder that if you want to listen to any of this program or to previous ones, you can go to the ABC's Listen app where you can download Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer and hope you can join us next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.